Hi, I'm TechCrunch Managing Editor Daryl Etherington. This is the TechCrunch Podcast, where we cover everything you need to know about the week's top stories in tech from the people who wrote them. This week, Amanda Silberling and I went live on LinkedIn and Twitter to talk about Elon Musk's questionable plans for blue checks on Twitter. Then I talk with Natasha Mascarenas about a new startup, Rewind, that wants to help humans have perfect memory. But first, I'll break down the biggest stories in tech. SpaceX launched its largest active rocket, the Falcon Heavy, for the fourth time ever and the first time since 2019. The launch included two satellites, payloads for U.S. defense customers, one of which was top secret. The Falcon Heavy's two side boosters returned to Earth and performed a coordinated dual landing. Even at Falcon Heavy's first launch, though, SpaceX CEO Elon Musk said that the company would turn its attention to what was then called BFR, a.k.a. the current Starship launch vehicle, so it's not surprising we haven't seen too many flights of this big spaceship. More about the launch on TechCrunch from Arya Alamohodiai. Amazon opened its entire music catalog of 100 million songs to Prime subscribers for free this week. The change also provides access to top podcasts in their entirety without ads. It's the latest in Amazon's ongoing efforts to justify the annual cost of Prime with a raft of benefits. There is a catch, however. You can only play back albums or an artist catalog in shuffle mode rather than listening to specific tracks on demand. Check out more on TC from Sarah Perez. Google is officially killing Google Hangouts, except all of its functionality will continue to exist. What's going away is the official Hangouts web app with Hangouts branding, but Google has long since introduced other products that do what Hangouts did, including Meet and Google Chat. It's confusing, but that's how Google product design and naming always works. You're fine. We're all fine. More on TechCrunch from Lauren Forrestal. Here's my conversation with Amanda Silberling about Elon's plan to change Twitter verification. All right. Thanks for joining us. This is TechCrunch's conversation on Elon Musk's Twitter verification plan, uh, which has just changed. So it's been a chaotic many days now, and me and Amanda are thriving in the chaos, I want to say. Right, Amanda? Thriving is a strong word, but... It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but the Twitter verification plan has gone through some iterations overnight. Yeah, maybe first let's just do a quick little summary of the latest in yes. the changing whims of our favorite erratic billionaire. So yesterday, the rumor was $20 a month. Today, Elon Musk tweeted about an hour ago, Twitter's current lords and peasants system for who has or who doesn't have a blue check mark is bullshit. Power to the people blue for $8 a month. So right now, Twitter blue is $5 a month. And with that, you get access to features like early access to the edit button, reading articles on certain news sources without ads, being able to see what are the most popular articles that the people that you follow and the people that they follow are sharing. And it's been no secret that Elon Musk and his buddies like Jason Calacanis, who is working closely with him on these updates right now, they don't like Twitter blue in the leaked texts from when TBT to when there was going to be a trial and and in discovery for the trial, a bunch of Elon Musk texts got released and he and Jason were uh, not happy with Twitter Blue and had a lot of thoughts about how it could be better. And apparently now Elon is saying you will also get priority in replies, mentions and search, which is essential to defeat scam slash spam, ability to post long video and audio, half as many ads. And then he like responds and says, and 
paywall bypass for publishers willing to work with us. And then responds 20 minutes later and says, this will also give Twitter a revenue stream to reward content creators. And just with the timestamps alone, it just feels like he's building this in like real time. Just absolutely. Imagine if we wrote our articles by just tweeting one sentence of an article at a time. (laughs) Without knowing what the next one would be or having any idea where we're going. Yeah, that is basically what he's doing. I know we both have literary backgrounds, but it reminds me of Jack Kerouac on the road in which he just started typing and didn't stop typing. But doing that for a novel is one thing and doing that for a company that employs many people and is used by some of the most powerful people in the world is a whole other thing. Yeah. I mean, the implications of all this stuff is tremendous, right? So like the things that he's thinking about changing are not going to just affect how the platform is able to make money, but they're going to affect how information is transmitted, how misinformation is transmitted, where people get their information and who they trust, right? Like, especially the verification elements. That that part is such a fraught landscape to kind of dip into and then make for pay. Because as soon as it becomes for pay, it kind of loses its value on the other side, being a verification mechanism for authoritative information, right? Because... I think we've talked about this a lot over the past few days and a lot of newsrooms have talked about this and I've seen some stories about other newsrooms and their positions on it, but like, I'm not going to pay for it myself out of my pocket and I don't even think that the company should pay for it necessarily if it goes that route, right? Which means, you know, we'd probably lose our blue check marks, which for the record, I'm not coveting for really any other reason than to say like, this is me and I sometimes claim to share factual information and therefore you should trust that because it's coming from me, a a real person on Twitter, right? Unless my account has been hacked or whatever, which we've also seen problems with. But for it to go the other way and it's essentially to the people who are willing to pay, that's a very different crowd, right? The problem with this plan that it just absolutely baffles me that Elon Musk does not seem to have any concept of like the fact that this will happen. But the blue check won't mean anything if you can pay for it and if anybody can get it. As you said, someone very easily could say, hello, I am the new Daryl Etherington and I am the managing editor of TechCrunch and I'm here to tell you, insert fake news here. Mm -hmm. And if you're not verified and that person's not verified, how do they know who the real Daryl is? And sure, you probably would have more followers than fake Daryl, but are we really trusting people and their fact checking while scrolling on Twitter skills enough to be like, hmm, this seems off. Let me click on this account and see if it seems legit. Right. Yeah, we don't. (laughs) We don't because like typically people don't click. I mean, we all know this, but typically people don't click through to the article, let alone to see who the author of the tweet was. Right. So the, the other thing that Elon doesn't realize about this is like Twitter didn't institute this because they wanted to introduce some kind of like cachet token. You know, like it was introduced not only for protection of information, but for their own protection legally, too. It gives them a layer of ability to say, like, we went through this verification process. And so then this person shared that information. So it's definitely that person's fault and not really our person's fault because we tried to apply some checks and balances. Right. So I think he doesn't realize the nature of the program or what it's for. And it revealed you brought it up in those messages that came in discovery that you know, he's not looking at the deep rigging of why things are or aren't included in blue. He's just looking at kind of like that surface level determination of what do people find desirable about the platform? And then can we make people pay money for that? Right. 
But I think this also just sort of shows how he's so far removed from what the average person on the internet wants or needs from their social media experience, because he's not like the rest of us. There is a massive power imbalance. He has like $200 billion. I have less than that amount of money by a long shot. (laughs) And I am not the CEO of several very large companies. And I think that probably like one of the guiding refrains of thinking about social media and content moderation and how these products are built is that if you're not somebody who is particularly vulnerable on social media, then you might not be initially driven to think about how are the most vulnerable people experiencing this platform. Right. So you have to think about like, how can any given feature be weaponized to harass people or spread misinformation? And it just feels like he's not thinking about that at all because he is out here saying Twitter's current lords and peasants system and whatever. And like, yeah. damn, if, if this is a lords and peasants system, does he think he's one of the peasants? I think he at least has enough kind of insight to consider himself a lord of the platform. I, I mean, I'm surprised he hasn't like made that his official title at the company, yeah. frankly, given well, his track I mean, record. He, right? he was chief twit, but That's now right. he is Twitter complaint hotline operator. So, yeah. So the other things that he's got in this plan is the news media thing. So you mentioned that, right? And people accessing articles without ads. So one of the things that happened today is that existing publishers in the current program were told overnight that the program is ending, that they're no longer doing that. That was another chaotic element thrown in the mix, right? So presumably now that he's shared this plan, it's because he wants to maybe renegotiate the terms of that deal. But, you know, it's it's not going to make publishers feel good about the safety and security of that plan and, and whatever does come out of it, right? Like partners were experiencing whiplash already based on that. And now they're going to, you know, have to, I guess, enter into new, new negotiations with new people at the company, probably. I'm not extremely worried about that. I think that Publishers will enter the program if they think it's a good deal for them. Twitter will keep running the program in another form if they think that it is a good product for them to sell. But I don't know. I mean, we also know from Sarah Perez's reporting on TechCrunch that Twitter Blue has not been the most lucrative product for Twitter. So I wouldn't be surprised if they were actually losing money. Right. One of the only things that seems like a smart priority for Elon right now is that he is trying to decrease the amount of money that Twitter is spending on things that don't help the company, which, you know, standard. You can understand that. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I, and I do agree as much as the, the messages were like revealed a lot of silliness, I guess, around these people and like just immaturity generally. But like I actually agree that Twitter Blue isn't a wonderful prospect. And I like to your point, Sarah's reporting backs up that there are probably a lot of other people who agree with me. Like at this point for blue, like it's kind of like aesthetic upgrades in like Fortnite or something. It feels like to me, like (laughs) I get you get some stuff out of it. That's kind of of substance, but to me, it really feels like you're not paying for much. So that part I kind of agree with. Right. But the verification thing is the most wrongheaded of all of this, I would say. I think also the ability, this is just from his bucket list that he's kind of outlined today out of nowhere, is like his ability to post long video and audio. I don't see where there's a market for that. I don't see a ton of people like lining up to give him money for the ability to post, I guess, I don't know what, like 10 minute long videos and audio on Twitter. Like that seems like a weird one to you. I don't Do you have thoughts on that? Maybe this kind of brings us to something that we were discussing privately, which is 
what does Elon Musk think about the creator economy and right. what are his plans for making Twitter a creator product? Because I report on the creator economy and something that is sort of interesting to me is you can make a lot of money by being a YouTuber or an Instagram influencer, but you can't really make money by being a Twitter personality. Generally, maybe you'll see like comedians with a huge following, Mm -hmm. but they're making their money from like doing shows and writing for TV and stuff like that. And I do think it is actually smart for him to be thinking about like, how do we make this platform actually something that creators can make money on? Because I think speaking of Sarah Perez's reporting, I believe she also wrote an article in the last couple of months about how there wasn't really much money flowing into Twitter through products for creators like super follows or ticketed spaces, which I believe actually was discontinued for the time being. Yeah, yeah. But it's a really complicated problem and he's just trying to solve it in real time. Right. But like, for example, he said, this will also give Twitter a revenue stream to reward content creators. What does that mean? Does that mean setting up a creator program like on Twitter? But a huge complaint about creator programs on other platforms, for example, like let's say TikTok says we're giving a million dollars away today to Mm -hmm. the best TikTokers. The more people that are in that program, the less money they're all going to get. Yeah. And that's been a problem with the creator economy generally. Yeah, for sure. And and that's like assuming you get a good pool to begin with. So the dilution of the pool is a huge problem. But the other problem for Elon is that he has to first like ramp up revenue to such a place that it puts Twitter in a place where they're making like not just revenue, but lots of profit. Like given what he's bitten off in terms of the leverage buyout and how much debt he owes and the company now owes in order to take it private, like the idea that you will have a pool large enough that creators will be able to participate meaningfully in it at scale is so far off. You know, especially given those like the numbers we have for Twitter Blue is the only thing we can go by in terms of how popular subscriptions are going to be on the platform, right? And given what we know now, they are not popular. So if you imagine even a, a moderate increase in popularity there relative to the overall user population, you still get to a point where that bucket of money is not big enough that he's going to be like, and you get, you know, a huge $10,000 check and you get a bunch of money and creators everybody come to the platform because we're our payouts are tremendous right like that is so far afield even considering everything goes well with this plan that again elon has just made up in 30 seconds based on <laughs> whatever reading a couple people's replies yeah it just seems impossible yeah, also right? in those lovely leaked texts from discovery and the trial that is now not happening jason calacanis was like we should get Mr. Beast back on Twitter and have him do all the content stuff, which like the thoughts are just, what if Mr. Beast? That's yeah. the end of the story. <laughs> That's right. And I mean, and Mr. Beast is one of the people he's been engaging with when he's working out some of these plans and his that replies. Now, I will say I still do find it really interesting to watch him do this product development in public in like Twitter conversations. And I think that's like somewhat laudable in a weird way. Like I, I don't like where he's going with it, but I think that's a separate problem from him doing this product development out in the open. I think that's like a Elon in general is maybe not the best at this kind of thing overall regardless of where he's doing it. I know he's had tremendous success 
So a lot of people will criticize me and be like, what did you ever do? And it's true. <laughs> As Amanda brought up earlier, I have no billions of dollars. <laughs> I so. have the, the quantity of billions we have is um, zero. Yeah, <laughs> even between us. But still, yeah, I think that has more to do with him and, and you know, a lot of the stuff that I think has been coming to light lately about how good he actually is at product design and how much he relies on a lot of the great skills of people around him. But I do like seeing it being worked out in real time. It's, it's a very interesting process to follow, especially as a member of the media, working for a long time covering these tech companies where everything happens behind closed doors. Well, not to put ourselves on the spot, but even though we have zero billions of dollars between the two of us, how do you think Twitter would be able to leverage creators as a way of making money? So I think that, and this is this is echoed in a, actually Ed Zeitron, who you know is a sometime TechCrunch contributor and good also tweeter. a PR person, but good tweeter and good <laughs> good newsletter writer. And he wrote one today about you know the Vine is the only kind of like bet that he can see working out. And I tend to agree with that. You know, I think like in terms of what's available to him right now is okay. Maybe if he can actually manage to spin up a viable TikTok clone using essentially the proto TikTok to do so, that is the only way I can see him truly partnering with and like enabling creators in a way that allows him to generate anywhere near the kind of revenue he needs to, to make Twitter viable going forward. So uh, do you have thoughts about that? Do you think that Vine could actually have a resurgence? If he brought back Vine as it was in the past, then no, because Vine wasn't making money before and creators weren't making money on Vine. Right. But we're also in a much different era of social media right now where the hot, cool thing that all of the social media platforms are copying each other on is short form video. And even before this brave new Musk era, we've seen Twitter experiment with a new feed for viewing videos where if you click on a video in your Twitter timeline and then like scroll to the next one, then it's like, you're on TikTok and you're scrolling through your little videos. I do think that he could capitalize on the nostalgia for Vine, but then rework it to make it like not just six seconds and figure out how to incorporate ads and how to share ad revenue with creators. I think just across the board, social media platforms need to figure out how to share short form video ad revenue with creators, which is something that YouTube Shorts is going to roll out next year that I'm very excited about. Well, and YouTube has the best track record when it comes to actually sharing monetization, right? You know, I think a lot of creators would argue that they still don't love the way that that works, but at least they seem to, you know, have been doing it for many years and doing it quite successfully, especially for the large producers on the platform. But I do want a, a couple housekeeping issues because people are tweeting at us oh, and no. everything as they're reading this. But I did not realize, and thank you, Shiraz, for pointing this out, that the longer audio video recording of up to 10 minutes is already a feature of Twitter Blue. Which I think actually strengthens the point we made earlier about, like, will that be something that increases demand, right? Also funny um, that, are you a Twitter Blue user? Because I have it. Uh, no, I don't oh, have it. No. I don't know. I didn't know that was a feature because that's not something that I ever need to do. That's right. Yeah, yeah. This is pretty much a good summary of where we're at right now. But is there anything else? I mean, th I think the other thing I wanted to point to was Taylor Hatmaker's uh, post on our site about, you know, how basically all the evidence that we've seen over the past few days is that 
The Twitter, as Elon Musk would like it to be, is a very sort of grim picture for for the LGBTQ community specifically, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, we've seen already he tweeted and then deleted a terrible, like totally wrong, false conspiracy theory about the attack on Paul Pelosi, right? Yeah. And, you know, he has previously, I think he's addressed the suspension of Michaela Peterson for dead naming... Uh, Elliot Page. I think you mean Jordan Peterson. And yeah, and right. Michaela. Ma- I responding to his, his, his daughter. daughter. Yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So the, the ingredients are not adding up to a good picture there, right? And I think yeah. th- this gets back to what you were talking about in terms of like the most vulnerable on the platform, right? Yeah. And I think that he thinks that like right wing COVID denying conspiracy theorists are the most vulnerable on the platform. And that's just not true. And like, I'm concerned about the future for trans people on Twitter because already there's a lot of transphobia on Twitter and Twitter does have policies where if you dead name someone or misgender them in a deliberately harmful way that you're doing on purpose to harass them, that violates the guidelines. And These are the sort of things that I just I feel like I've said this like so many times over the last six months, but I just don't understand what he is fighting for. Like, who do you think is more vulnerable? Somebody who has a huge platform that is using it to dead name Elliot Page or is it this actor who is very publicly going through a very vulnerable transition and is being harassed for trying to live a life that makes him feel like himself? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, this is the part that I, cause the rest and the stuff we were talking about before is kind of like, you know, it's, it's the levity of this really. Like, I mean, I, I do feel bad for the people whose jobs are involved in terms of like the long-term sustainability of the platform when he's making these kind of like, from the hip decisions about product, right? But that stuff is a little bit like, well, you know, we can have fun with it. But on the other side, there's a real, real nasty undercurrent that is like, has potentially tremendous impact on the transgender community, on communities that are already constantly under assault. And I think that's the part that makes this an absolute tragedy to watch unfold rather than, you know, something that is like fun and entertaining, right? So it's it's got both of those angles, but that's the part that I think we need to keep the closest eye on because I feel like while, and this is classic Elon, while he's doing his spectacle on the other side, right, he could be doing actually quite nefarious things, you know, below the notice of the the sort of general public. Yeah, I do think this is something that we need to keep an eye on. And I always think that in these situations, it's useful to think about when there is some like ideological debate, like who on what side has what to gain. And Mm -hmm. Trans people being trans on Twitter are just trying to be themselves and use a social media app. And people that are trying to censor trans people on Twitter are full of hate and trying to make people not be themselves. And that is bad. That's my very simplified analysis of the situation. (laughs) (laughs) I I think that's that's good. I think in this case, like no further complexity is required. So thanks, Amanda, for articulating it that way. But I think we're just about out of time here and... Don't worry, though. I'm sure there'll be plenty more conversation around this to come. But uh, yeah, stay tuned. We'll be back with more. And thanks, everybody, for joining us. And thank you, Amanda. Thank you, Daryl. Next, I talk with Natasha Mascarenas about a new Andreessen Horowitz-backed startup, Rewind. 
Hey, Natasha, how's it going? Hey, it's going good. Been a really boring, uneventful week in tech. Yes, it has. Uh, yeah. I, okay, <laughs> we're exhausted with Elon, but luckily we're not here to talk about him in any capacity whatsoever. Yes. So <laughs> you can feel your neurons kind of relaxing and rejoicing, listener, I think. Calming down. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be a good one. Now, this is also a super interesting story. Do you want to tell us about Rewind? Yeah, so I wrote about a startup in a category I never write about, which is recording technology built by someone who pioneered A-B testing. Hmm. And the reason I did it was because Rewind wants to help us with our memory. And we've seen so many different versions of disrupting search engines in the past. And this is kind of trying to disrupt the way we search through our online lives. So it kind of creates this interesting recording of what we see say and hear on our computers every day. The idea being down the road, whenever we want to bring up, you know, every time someone has mentioned hot dogs to us for some reason, we can search it in the Rewind app and we'll find every mention that's happened since the app's been downloaded. Wow. Okay. Now I can't help but have a frisson as you talk about that. It's it's scary. It's a scary prospect. It's like, like on the one hand, I can see how it would be immensely powerful because there's so many times where I'm frantically going like, where did I see that or hear that? Yes. And I'm on my computer and I'm in my notes app, like looking for keywords or an email everywhere, just trying to find it, right? And often I don't. So I can see the benefit, but I also just get really scared when you talk about that. Yeah, I mean, and I'll be honest, I almost didn't write about it because of the privacy concerns of just like, I don't know, like if you're talking to a coworker, even talking to a source, off the record, mm -hmm. the fact that it's being recorded in any way just feels kind of uncomfortable. So I actually ran it by Zach Whitaker, our security editor at TechCrunch. And I was like, hey, this is how they're addressing privacy, which is that they're really pushing that they are only recording locally on someone's computer mm -hmm. and that only the user has access to all recordings. The employees don't even and, you know, they'll never be selling ads. So Zach actually, you know Zach. Yeah. He's not a very optimistic person when it comes to security claims by startups sometimes. No. He thought it was pretty savvy. Oh, so okay. So that made me want to write about it, if I'm being honest. Yeah, that is high praise coming from Zach. I mean, yeah, we always float anything that looks a little sketchy privacy-wise by him. And... Typically, he's like, oh, no, this is trash. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I was so expecting that. And I think, obviously, you know, there's an asterisk because he did say if someone's computer gets hacked with malware that, you know, there is just a lot more sensitive data right. on your computer than if you didn't have Rewind downloaded. And then there's like that awkward dance you have to do when you have to ask someone if it's okay for you to record them, which like reporters, we do it all the time. But I don't know if the average person is like thinking about it in that way. Mm -hmm. And I imagine there's some legal issues that could come up down the road if you're recording someone talking to you and they don't have any idea of it depending on where you live. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, especially in the States, it's state by state, whether it's like two party or single party uh, often yeah. for recording. But I, yeah, I, I did see in your article, you know, they, they said always just ask is the best policy. And that's true generally, right? Like regardless of whether you're single party or two party, except in certain circumstances, like investigative journalism circumstances where it's like, okay, take advantage of the single party because otherwise you're never going to get the story, right? Yeah. And like national security is on the line or something. But this, yeah, I, I get the, the impulse here. I did want to ask, just to clarify, it's not like it's like constantly... Just if you have the app open and you're you happen to be speaking aloud, it's capturing audio. It's when you're using video conferencing apps or is it just always active mic? It integrates with your apps. And that's a good clarifying question. I would say it's 
almost always when you're talking through an app versus just talking near your computer. That feels more reasonable. So let's hope that that's that. And then some other boundaries that I think are worth noting is you can retroactively use your delete button. So... Let's say I'm slacking about something. I'm making myself seem super shady. I slack about secret <laughs> I things. I saw in your articles, <laughs> I was like, there's like an expense hacks mention. I was like, Natasha, what are you doing? <laughs> I know I'm like just airing all my like workarounds that I plan to use. But yeah, so, so Dan was saying that you can delete something like now. And then if you rewind, it won't be there. Mm-hmm. They automatically don't record incognito mode or private browsing windows. And you can also choose obviously to exclude specific apps like Signal or one password. So I was like, okay, yeah, I think that user onboarding will be very important for it to actually be adopted. Yeah. I don't know who's going to use it is my big question. As reporters, I think we have a really interesting use case, but is the average person trying to search their lives as much every day? I don't know. Right. I mean, that is the big question for me too, because the instant appeal, and I don't know if you got the chance to speak to whoever led the round at A16Z. Yeah. Yeah. But I would be curious, like the investor perspective on what they think the opportunity is. Because for me, the opportunity is device management, is like IT department device management. And it's necessarily sort of surveillance at that point. Like, yes, maybe limited access and like only in case of incident. So that still fits all within the the sphere of like, oh, it's local to your computer and whatever, whatever. It's like, oh, if something bad happens, maybe they can look at the employee's logs like under MDM, yeah. right? So did you talk at all about kind of what the imagined user is? Because especially because it's the computer. I think on a phone, actually, this makes a lot more sense. But on the phone, it's impossible to do just technically. Yeah. And like you're kind of, I agree with you where it's like on a computer, you have to be locked down thinking about it and going through these steps in order to, I don't know, in order to be searching up these really random moments throughout your day, which, yeah, it doesn't feel natural. I will say I wasn't surprised to see Andreessen leading the round of all investors because I do see that venture firm very much always liking to back the people that have broad ways about reinventing the way we learn. Yeah. This use case right now, they're really saying that it's supposed to help one day with humans perfecting their memory, which just like has right. Andreessen written all over it. It does. <laughs> and I actually, I, I asked Dan for more clarification on why having a better search would help as a memory aid, even though it requires you to be sitting on your computer. And I don't think he had the strongest answer. He had an answer, which is, you know, if we had a perfect memory, we wouldn't need to search through emails, texts, and docs. We would just remember them. So this is kind of one step right. and the first product. So I don't know. I, I think that they're very very much viewing it as a consumer play right now. Yeah. And I don't know, maybe they'll quiz you on like something that you saw <laughs> after using the app at a certain point and be like, huh. Oh, look, to actually develop like your innate biological memory. Exactly. I mean, uh, if I had more time, I would have loved to talk to a scientist or just someone who knows how memory works more. But I always thought it was repetition and, and stuff like that versus just having something at your fingertips. In some ways, it makes me feel lazier. Yes. To know I have a recording in search of everything. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to bet that, and this is just supposition because I haven't spoken to these people, but given like what you just said about it's A16Z and it's also like this person seems like quite the technologist. I think it's like a step towards the, oh goodness, what's the moment during wh- like when robotics and humanity kind of combines. Now I'm forgetting mm-hmm. the Ray Kurzweil I wish I could help term. you here. Yeah, it's all right. Listeners <laughs> will know what I'm talking about. They'll be screaming about it right now. But <laughs> yeah, it's like, okay, well, eventually the distinction will be immaterial because we'll be essentially like combined, right? Like the machine and the person will be one and the memory will be like recall through this. And it's it's like, technically it looks really impressive in terms of the way that they're going about it. Like the compression. Yeah. 
and the resource use, like using the SSC, the Apple Silicon stuff so that it's not taxing your system? Because this would be immensely taxing for like an totally. Intel era system, right? But I even asked, like, I was like, is Apple an investor or do you guys financially die in any way? Because he was really citing Apple as a huge reason why the company even exists and why it can continue to. And he said no, but I, I feel like it's one of those use cases that I hadn't considered of that advancement on Apple's end with yeah. the chips. Yeah, so like that is just cool. But like, I wonder if that's part of the bet that Andreessen made, right? Is like, oh, like there's a lot of just technical underpinnings here that are probably like generally very useful, regardless of what the outcome of this particular app is, right? It's like truly the bet on the idea and the person who he is like one of the people that is credited with creating and scaling the A-B test because he was the co-founder of Optimizely. So I feel like this person has that history in creating ideas that really define how tech is built. So I like kind of where you're setting on, which is like, maybe it's just this habit and this user learning that happens as a result of this startup versus like, yeah, maybe everyone's not going to be searching like for hot dogs in their search bar. Right. I, don't, I don't even need hot dogs, to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> but you always want to look maybe it up just, for some reason. <laughs> maybe it's just kind of like, yeah, like thinking if you can get a whole cohort of people to think broader about the way they memorize, like that's pretty damn cool. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And so our producer Maggie has thankfully sought out what the term is and it's the technological singularity so the singularity is what i was thinking of and that's like the famous conception of like at one point we will combine with ai and then that'll usher in like the next era of like human utopia is oh my god yeah yeah the human machine hybrid all right well i learned something new i mean i feel like that's like kind of us with otter right like is that like a similar thing where i feel like i'm an extension of myself exactly always being recorded and existing yeah you've offloaded that transcription feature that that memory feature too that's a memory feature like to the cloud and to ai right so this looks like it could be the basis for that if i'm so that's like my big brain like andreessen being like oh we're like so future focused and you don't even you can't even get on our level but then i'm also going to do the cynical brain which is like (laughs) near term like this crazy idea doesn't pan out that way it's excellent surveillance wear for a remote first <laughs> workforce era but you know i don't i'm not saying that the uh, founder in this case is bought into that or anything i'm just saying if i'm being cynical about what's my b option for my return that's what i'm looking sure. at sure right? sure i'll take it I, yeah like let's be real like you're not recording this on your home computer that you use only like after 6 p.m right you're using it like from your whole virtual life which is just a different level and honestly like cynical sure but that is probably the biggest challenge for Rewind to actually get users is getting people who are like, I'm down to have my whole... I mean, people are still really upset at the idea of your company knowing how active you are online yeah. and how active you are on your computer. So I, I do think it, it like is going to get maybe like tech solo founder, maybe some tech journalist, stuff like that. I, it's, I'm curious how they're going to convince like the average person. Well, they'll use your hot dog example, I think. Natasha. Yeah. They'll be like... It'll be game over. <laughs> do you remember the last time you talked about hot dogs? <laughs> I don't know what's happening today. It's a weird week, okay? Well, <laughs> I was like, how do I not bring up something shady? I think hot dogs are non-controversial enough. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks very much for coming on to talk about this. Yeah, it's been great chatting with you. I do, I'm do. i like eager to try this. It's not available yet, listeners, but uh, I think you can go and express your interest in some way. But yeah, I, I would give this a shot on a, on a sandboxed computer, I would say, that has nothing <laughs> sensitive on it, but would love to try. I'm going to do it on a really, really slow week, like the week before Thanksgiving. Let's just all download it and see what yeah, happens. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Thanks, Daryl. 
That's it for this week. Thanks for joining us. Also, TC Sessions Crypto is happening November 17th in Miami. I'll be there. So go get your tickets for that. And then I'll see you there. Be sure to check out all the other TC podcasts as well, including Found, Equity, Chain Reaction, and the TechCrunch Live podcast. We'll be back next week. The TechCrunch podcast is hosted by myself, managing editor Daryl Etherington. We're produced by Maggie Stamets with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening and we'll be back next week.